0: This morning I'd like to take a look at a church that I would call the model church in some ways. It's the church at Thessalonica. So we'll be looking in First Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, the church at Thessalonica, being in the city of thessalonica of course, um, was first visited by the Apostle Paul that we read about in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. And I'd like to go there in the beginning because we can learn some lessons about how churches... Uh, are to be constituted organized and how they were in that day and I believe how they should be even today in which we live. Now, we find that the city of Thessalonica was about 100 miles from where Paul and them had been previously, which was in Macedonia. Uh, it's located in the country of Greece. Uh, it's one of two cities that you can visit today uh, that existed back in the days of Paul. But just a few locations like that are, are still... Uh, you know, where you can go and see the very city and the very location. Of course, much has changed. And uh, Thessalonica was one of those. Uh, it's also one of two um, churches that the Apostle Paul wrote letters to that he wrote two to. Uh, Paul wrote nine letters to seven churches. And of those seven churches, the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica, received two letters. So he wrote nine altogether. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 17, we find that Paul and them have uh, arrived at Thessalonica. And the Bible tells us, as Paul's manner was, he went into the synagogue of the Jews. In that day, there was probably about 200,000 people that lived in the city. Today is about 300,000. That day was about 200,000 that lived there. And we find that there was a, a majority of the people lived there were Greeks. Uh, then the next uh, most populous people were Romans. And then there were a few very devout, dedicated Jewish people that lived there. And Paul, as his manner was, went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, if you study Paul's manner of preaching, you will find that when he first preached to Gentiles, he approached it differently than he did when he preached to Jews. The Gentiles did not have the scriptures. They did not have the oracles of God. So Paul usually began with the subject of creation when he spoke to the Gentiles. But when he spoke to the Jewish people, he began in the Old Testament scriptures, and we preached the Lord Jesus Christ because they had the Old Testament scriptures, and they were familiar with the passages that Paul, or well, should be in any way, that Paul would bring to their attention. So, on this occasion here, once they arrive here at Thessalonica, uh, Paul feels like no doubt he could find a friendly congregation immediately with those Jewish people in the Jewish synagogue. Now, he's going to reason with them, the Bible says, out of the scriptures. Three Sabbath days in a row. When we look at the time period that Paul spends here with this church, now there is no church at this point. Now remember, when Paul and Timothy, uh, and uh, in this first letter, you'll find a man by the name of Savanus, but also Silas was with Paul. You're going to find uh, when they get there, there is no church. And no church has been established, no gospel has been preached at this particular city. But there's going to be one shortly. And uh, this church is going to be organized in about a month's worth of labor. Now, that would seem incredibly short to us today. Uh, The churches that I'm aware of and been acquainted with and had some experience with uh, in my lifetime to organize and constitute, it usually is after a month, sometimes a year, two years, even maybe three years of activity and labor. But this church is going to be organized in about four weeks of intense labor by the Apostle Paul. Now, remember, he is the apostle, and God has sent him there. God has opened this door of opportunity. Now, we believe as Primitive Baptists that we should seek in, uh, the Lord's opening of doors for us if we're going to labor. Uh, about 25 years ago, God opened up a door in the Philippines. Uh, some Filipinos down there had come in contact with us, and they come to understand the truth of the doctrine of the Bible, contact one of our ministers, and they set up a meeting, and we had some ministers who were willing to travel by faith and to travel to the Philippines to see these people and preach to them. And since that time, there's been multitudes of churches, primitive Baptist churches, organized, constituted in the Philippines. We have primitive Baptist churches in India. We have primitive Baptist churches in Africa. They were all started in the same manner, in the same way. A committee didn't send them. A board of directors didn't send them. Some man-made organization didn't send them. It was the Lord opening the door by the Spirit of God, impressing men of God to walk by faith and travel by faith and impressing the people of God, individuals and churches, to support them financially so they can make this trip. There are no funds anywhere set aside by the Primitive Baptists for these type of activities. We believe the Lord is in the arrangements. If the Lord is in the matter, a way will be made for the men to make these trips. And so numerous ministers here in the States over the years have been to these different locations not only to get these churches going and started but to go back and to re, uh, you know, say, confirm the things that they had taught them in the past and to see how they were doing in in much labor for a good number of time, probably not to last again 25 years. Uh, This is what Paul and them are doing. They get to this place and they... Uh, go to the synagogue of the Jews there is no church. Once again i want to emphasize that. And so for three Sabbath days continually we find where Paul is uh, laboring here starting off with the Jewish people. Now it says he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. The word reason here means he discussed with them the things of the scriptures. He had the Old Testament scriptures now not the New Testament. All these guys the Old Testament scriptures. But he reasons with them, and that word reason literally means to have a kind of a question-answer session or a dialogue. That's how it begins. Then it says, opening and alleging from the Scriptures. That word opening there uh, means to explain. Uh, Opening and alleging means to set forth side by side. In other words, he's doing what he tells Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2.15. When he says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God's word is not written like a novel. God's word is not written like some school book or some book you go to the library and check out or to the bookstore and buy. It's written in a manner and way where it has to be studied very carefully. Paul himself said in 2 Timothy 2.7 to the young minister, Timothy, consider what I say and the Lord give thee understanding." Now, if the apostle realized that he just could not drill in understanding, even to a man like Timothy, the same applies today. All I can do is get people to consider what I say and ask and pray that the Lord would give them understanding. Now, that word opening is the same word used in Luke 24, after the resurrection of Christ, when he was on the, Damascus, excuse me, the road to Emmaus. And on this road, he joins up with two. And we'll just fast forward to the end of this chapter, And the last thing we find the Lord doing is He's taking the Old Testament Scriptures and opening those Scriptures and giving them understanding things concerning Himself. That word opening there, a very important word. So He's opening and alleging. He's explaining, but He's explaining it by reading the Scriptures, comparing the Scriptures, putting them side by side to rightly divide it like I tried to do this morning with our prayer verse. Uh, there in First uh, John 4, 9, and also in the 8th chapter of the book of Proverbs. So here's Paul's manner. Here's Paul's approach. He's going to do this in less than a month's time. And we're going to find after he does this that the Scriptures teach us that many of the Jewish people... Let me go ahead and say this. After he does this, uh, he says, And then that I have preached unto you how that Christ hath suffered and that he has arisen... Uh, And this same Jesus I preach unto you is Christ. Now Christ, the word Christ means anointed. And the Jewish people were looking for the coming of this anointed one, Christ. And when Jesus came, he was the one the prophets was talking about. But we notice here as Paul has uh, reasoned with them out of the scriptures, as he's opening and alleging things out of the scriptures, he ends up preaching unto them Jesus which it says is Christ, this Jesus I preach unto you that must suffer and be raised from the dead, says he's Christ. He's the one, the prophets were talking about. All right, after this about a month's labor, we find where it says, and many of the Greeks believed. Many of the devout Greeks, let me get that in there. Many of the devout Greeks believed. Not just the Greeks, but the devout Greeks. And the word devout there means godly and pious. It's the same word used to describe Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. One of the evidences that Cornelius was a born-again child of God before Peter ever got there is the fact that he was a devout person. He was a godly person. Not ungodly, but godly person, a pious person. And so the devout Greeks believed and consorted with Paul. The word consorting means to join with. In other words, they joined up with him after they heard these messages about Christ and believed. They joined up. Then it says, many of the Greeks... And then it says, of oh, the chief women, not a few. Uh, I don't know exactly who the chief women were. <laughs> okay? But anyway, many of the chief women believed. Many of the Greeks believed. Uh, and so there are some blessings going on right here, right? All right. But now we notice in verse 5 what happens. But some of the unbelieving Jews. Now, have you ever wondered when the gospel is preached like that to multitudes of people, why some believed and some did not believe? Why didn't they all believe? Because to believe, you had to be born of the Spirit of God to believe. If you have not been born of the Spirit of God, you're not going to believe. So many of the unbelieving Jews, he says they began to get men of the baser sort, ungodly people in other words, and they raised up immediate opposition to the works and labors of the Apostle Paul and those that was with him. And this is the way Satan works. Satan will always oppose the work of God. Uh, Satan will oppose you as an individual. Satan will oppose us. Uh, as a congregation of people Satan does not want God honored and glorified he doesn't want the truth preached he doesn't want, doesn't want to see converts etc cetera, etc cetera. he will oppose the work so you'll find opposition begins immediately and that opposition is so fierce that we find where they are going to get Paul and Silas out of there they have to leave abruptly they've only been there about a month but during that month they've had God open the door God blessing them to preach God making their efforts and labors fruitful and bless them. And Satan arises up and begins to attack them and persecute them and cause all kind of problems there. And they said, these men, talking about Paul and them, have turned the world upside down. Now here's an example of how the word world obviously is used, not talking about all of humanity, but the world that they were living in, that world of idolatry, that world of immorality, the apostles there just long enough to turn their world upside down and they didn't like it and Satan now is going to bring about persecution and they have to leave and they go to a place called Berea. Now when you get to Berea, you're going to find where the Bible says they were actually even more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the word of God daily to see if these things were so. They were Bible searchers. That's what we're lacking in the land today is Bible searchers. We have plenty of Bibles. That's not the problem. Uh, most any house that uh, claims they believe in God will have a Bible. That's not the problem. The problem is lack of reading the Bible, lack of studying the Bible, lack of searching the Scriptures to see if these things are so. So just a little background about this church, how it got started. Very briefly, how it got started. Now we come over here and start in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, We find that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are the ones that are sending this letter. Now, Paul is the human writer. God is the author. And sends it to the church of Thessalonica in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this church, without a question, without a doubt, is in God. This is the planning of God. This is the hand of God that's been involved. Then he says, grace and peace be unto you. Paul always addressed his church letters this way. Grace and peace. Before you can have peace, you have to have grace. Where there is no grace, there will be no peace. Always notice the order of things when you're reading the Bible. It didn't say peace and grace be with you. It's always grace and then peace. The grace of God must precede before peace can be established. Now, when Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, he threw a third word in there. He didn't just say grace and peace. He said grace, mercy, and peace. So the minister of the gospel will need a little mercy along the way. So he puts mercy in there along with grace and peace. He then says, I thank my God always for you, making mention of you in my prayers. The Apostle Paul thanked God for this church in these two letters, which is eight chapters, five in 1 Thessalonians, three in 2 Thessalonians, going to find him thanking God for this church six times. And in 1 Thessalonians, he thanks them in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Paul was thankful for this church right here. I trust I'm thankful for our church right here. I'm thankful for the Primitive Baptist churches across this country, and now in the world. But I'm especially thankful for you. Uh, This is, I trust, the place where we labor together. So I'm very thankful for you for various reasons. And Paul was thankful for this church at Thessalonica. You see, Uh, He didn't stay there very long, but while he was there, they learned a lot about Christ by Paul. Paul was a converted Jewish Pharisee, laboring with Timothy, who was half Jew and half Gentile. That's pretty miraculous within itself. He had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, and they were there for about a month before they had to leave. But during that month, they learned a lot about Christ through Paul, and they learned a lot about Paul through Paul. And Paul learned a lot about them in that month's period of time. When Paul met those three Sabbath days, it wasn't for an hour and a half each day, I can guarantee you. It was a full day on that Sabbath day of Paul uh, discussing these things, reasoning these things, opening these things, alleging these things from the Old Testament Scriptures concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, His sufferings, His resurrection, and proving that the very Jesus he preached was Christ. It was an all-day affair. Not an hour and a half, I can assure you that. So he thanks God for them. And then he mentions three things that he observed in their life. He says, remembering without ceasing. Now notice these two things. I, pray, I thank God for you always, making mention of you in my prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. Now, you got three well known words, should be well known to the Bible reader and student. You got faith, you got hope, and you got love. Now, I turn over here to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. I read an entire chapter devoted to the subject of charity. And it ends like this Now, about faith, hope, and charity. And the greatest of these is charity. Now, the word charity means love in motion, love in action, motion, uh, love that is shared. And I've told you this before, I'm going to emphasize it again to you. Modern day translations change that word charity to love. Charity is love, but it's a special kind of love. And when you take the word charity out and replace it with love, it loses its pack, its impact, it loses its punch. Charity is love that can be felt. Charity is love that can express. Charity is love that's not just in word, but it's in action. And that's what he's teaching here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You should be familiar with that chapter. He says, these three abide right now. But he says, the greatest of these is love because when my life ends, my faith ends and my hope ends, I now will see God with my eyes and my hope becomes reality. But love will continue to exist in heaven just like it does right here, you see, except in perfection. So there's three things about this church. Remembering without ceasing. Your labor of love. Your work of faith. They labored. They worked. And it says uh, their patience of hope. The word patient means in continuance. It means endurance. This hope that they had, uh, they lived on this hope day by day by day by day, you see. And so this is how Paul has, uh, sees this church. How, what Paul has learned about this church, and then we come to verse four, and he says, "Knowing, brethren, beloved, if you read First and Second Thessalonians eight chapters and keep count and track it, you will find that Paul uses the word brother or brethren twenty-eight times. He's writing to family. He's writing to the church made up of the Lord's people, which are his family." That's pretty amazing to me. Twenty-eight times in these eight chapters. I'd read these eight chapters in ten minutes. I'd read these eight chapters in ten minutes. And in reading those these eight chapters in ten minutes, I'm gonna read the word brother or brethren twenty eight times. Nineteen in First Thessalonians, nine times in Second Thessalonians. Paul must have loved these folks pretty good. Uh, he, he had kinship established here with the people here at Thessalonica, you see. So he says, knowing, brethren, beloved. If you in your center reference your Bible there, you'll see the word beloved means beloved of God in election. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now he said, you are the elect of God. Not all the elect of God was there, just like not all the elect of God is here. You represent, just obviously, a very, 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 very small percentage of the family of God here this morning. In fact, the percentage is so low, I wouldn't be able to even figure it out. But nevertheless, you represent the family of God, what? As the elect of God. Now, I was reading uh, some writings of this man that uh, a lot of times has a lot of good things to say, one thing or another. And he, he confesses uh, in his writings that elections taught in the Bible. But he can't explain it. And he says, his college professor told him, if you try to explain the election, you'll lose your mind. If you try to explain it away, you might lose your soul. Well, I'm telling you, I've been studying for 50 years, and I think I still got my mind. You might object to that. You might disagree with that. But I'm telling you, I've been studying for 50 years, and it sure hadn't caused me to lose my mind. In fact, what it's helped me to do is to get my mind stable and have the mind of Christ. To you lose your mind. Obviously, you can't lose your soul because your soul is resting in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your soul is in His possession, and no man can pluck you out of His hand. And the Father which gave them to him, you to him is great and all. I can pluck them out of the Father, saying, whether you understand or don't understand the doctrine of election, your soul is not at stake. But I want you to understand the doctrine of election, the beauty of the doctrine of election. And when I begin to think about election, the beauty of it, uh, I need to kind of understand a little bit about man's depravity. When you understand man's depravity, you'll understand, apart from election, there'd be no family of God. If it we were not for election, there'd be no people in heaven, period. That's the truth of the matter, you see. The word "elect," elected, elects, or "election" is used 27 times in the scripture. But it's not only taught by the word. The words I just gave you, it's taught in other words. You know in John chapter 17, when the Lord Jesus Christ goes and prays his high priestly prayer, if you will count them carefully... You will find seven times in this prayer where Jesus refers to a people that God gave to him. Let's just look at one of them in John 17, two. In John 17, two, the Lord Jesus Christ lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays, Father, the hours come. Glorify thy Son. He might also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, and he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's the first of seven times. John, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. According, if he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, we should hold without blame before him in love. That's election. John chapter 6, verses 38 and 39. All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh unto me, and I know why I is cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the will of him that sent me, all the Father has given me. I shall lose nothing, but raise up again at the last day. That's divine, unconditional election. And we usually put that word in there, unconditional, because there's many verses in the Bible that are conditional of things that you should do, not become God's child, but because you are God's child. Not become the elect, but because you are the elect. Knowing, brother and beloved, your election of God. Paul used that in many of his writings. Look at Romans eight thirty 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that's risen again, who's on the right hand of God, making intercession for us. In verse 33, prior to that, he says, Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Well, read verses 29 and 30. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And those he called, them he also justified. And those he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things of God before us? Who can be against us? And two verses later he says, Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God's elect that he foreknew. Those that God foreknew are his elect. Those that God predestinated are his elect. God that called and does call sometime between conception and death is his elect. Those whom Christ died for and justified on Calvary are his elect. And those that Christ will redeem, or excuse me, will glorify one day when He comes again and calls our bodies from the sleep and dust of this earth are the elect. Colossians three twelve, He says, "Put on therefore as the elect of God." He writes to Timothy. He says, "I endure all things for the elect's sake." That word describes the family of God. There are several phrases in the Bible that describe God's family, but God's family is His family based upon the what God did before time ever began, before the foundation of the world, when God foreknew people, chose chosen people, elected a people, named a people, and gave a people to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that no man can number. No man can number. We're not talking about a few people, we're talking about many people. Did you notice back there in Romans 8, 29 and 30, more of whom he did foreknow, oh, he also did predestinate, be conformed unto the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many. Not few, many. Jesus Christ came not to be ministered to, but to minister of his life a ransom for many. That word many means the greater part of the whole. Not few, many. So Paul here says, knowing, brother and beloved, your election of God. He says, I know you're the elect of God. Why, Paul? He can see the evidence in their lives. He's already said that he's remembered without ceasing their labor of love, their work of faith, and their patience of hope. Who possesses such things as that, except for the children of God? The wicked cannot be described that way. The evil cannot be described that way. The immoral people of this world cannot be described that way. That can only be a description of the children of God who are the elect of God. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not in word only. He said, I preached the gospel to you. It didn't come just in the word. It came by the word, but not just in the word. The gospel cannot be preached without the word. We preach the gospel. The good news and glad tidings about the living word that's revealed to us in the written word. You got the written word, the living word, and the gospel word. And so, our gospel came not unto you. Well, it came to them, all right. I've already showed you that in Acts chapter 17. Our gospel came unto you not in word only, but it came in power. It came in the Holy Ghost, and it came in much assurance. It came in three different ways. The word power just simply means it came under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. The gospel can't be preached without the blessings of the Lord. Man can't preach the gospel without a divine call. Then he can't preach the gospel after the call without the presence of the Lord and the blessings of the Lord. It just can't happen. That's why I want you to pray for me every time I stand before you in this pulpit because I don't care how long I've been preaching, which is now almost 50 years, and well over 4,000 sermons during that period of time. But every time I try to stand, I stand in need of God's grace to preach this morning as much as I have all the rest of the times of my entire life. He says, our gospel came not in word only, but it came in power. It cannot come independently of the Lord. It cannot come in separation from the Lord. If it comes in power, that means God's in the arrangement. God is blessed with the word to come in power. Now, let's go over here in the book of Romans 1, 15 and 16, Paul says, for as much as in me is, and that's all any man can say. It's all I can say. As much as in me is, whatever that is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you which at Rome also. This morning on the way here, I was getting the best I could to be ready to preach the gospel to you here at Bethel Church. As much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you which at Rome also. He says, for the preaching of the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, not to the unbeliever, but to the believer. And to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. The gospel came to the Jewish people first, and then it went to the Gentiles and to the Greeks, you see. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul said, My preaching and my teaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom or with excellency of speech. Now you might think, well, you know, every minister would to want to try to be as articulate as he can be. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But notice what he says here. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Man's wisdom gets in the way far too many times. My teaching and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. And I came among you, I came with great fear and with great trembling. That's how serious the matter was with the Apostle Paul. The weight of preaching the gospel and laboring among God's people is so great it caused him to greatly fear and to greatly tremble when he stood before the people of God. Remember the story of the man who was just busting to preach and he got in the pulpit and just failed miserably. Couldn't even hardly say his name. Remember another little story in connection with this. When a man got to preach, he couldn't just get started. He turned around to preach behind him. And says, "What can kind he of preach on?" He preached on the Lord. <laughs> he said, "Who is he?" <laughs> You're in the dark, brother. When you answer like that. But anyway, when he came out, there came a little old sister up to him, and she said unto him, "If you'd have went into the pulpit like you came out, you'd have preached." He came out dragging. He went in. Boldly. He came out dragging. She said, if you'd went in there dragging, you'd have came out boldly. What a difference it makes. My teaching, my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So Paul says, Our gospel came not in you in word only, but it came in power. And it came in in the Holy Ghost, and it came in much assurance. The gospel gives you assurance, and it gives you not just, it gives you much assurance. And and, and living in this world here, you need all the assurance you can get. You live in a world that'll beat you down in a heartbeat. See, this church at Thessalonica, these were real people living in a real world with real problems. And Paul's trying to encourage them you are the people of God. Living in a you're a real people living in a real world and you have real problems, do you not? Did you know that at the end of every one of these chapters, these five chapters, is one of the most encouraging things you'll ever get in life? At the end of all five chapters, there's reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Five times. He closes every chapter out with reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gospel came not in word only, but it came in power, it came in the Holy Ghost. And it came in much assurance. I know I've used this before, but Karen and I have been blessed of God to live together 54 years. Celebrated our 54th anniversary last June, just a few weeks back. And each night before we go to sleep, we kiss each other. Each night she tells me she loves me, and each night I tell her I love her. In the morning time, she tells me she loves me, and I tell her I love her. And I've told her that for 54 years. And she's told me that for 54 years. And you might think, well, Brother Lawrence, don't you get tired of that? No, I don't. I enjoy it. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Uh, Who who gets tired of somebody telling you they love you? And you shouldn't get tired of telling somebody you love them. It ought to be a privilege, an honor, whatever, my friends, to tell somebody that's been your friend and companion all these years down through the journey of life. I mean, we've been through thick and thin together. We've had our highs, we've had our lows. But by the grace of God and the blessings of God, my friends, here we are today. And God has been good and God has been gracious and God has been great and God has been merciful to us all along the way. And so it's just an honor for me to be able to go to sleep at night, but not before I say I love you and kiss her one more time. Our gospel came not in word only, it came in power of the Holy Ghost and much assurance. I want to be assured one more time I come to the house of God. I want to assure you one more time that you're loved of God. I want to assure you one more time you're the elect of God. I want to assure you one more time Jesus bought you but he shed blood. I want to assure you one more time that the Holy Spirit applied that blood when he born you of the spirit of God. I want to assure you one more time that one day you'll leave this world and you'll take your flight right into glory. I want to assure you one more time. I said, don't you get tired of being assured in the house of God? Brother Ronald, I hope you don't say no to that. I mean, yes to that, excuse me. Who gets enough assurance? Who's got so much assurance? Oh, I've got all the assurance I need. Well, you're different than me, I tell you that. We're not on the same page. I don't, you do not mean to tell me how you get along without assurance. I want the assurance. And it comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the studying of God's word. Our gospel came not in word only. Oh, it came in the word, but it came in power. And it came in the Holy Ghost. And it came in much assurance. Not a little assurance. It came in much assurance. And then notice what happens next. As you know what manner of man we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. That's what happens next. Notice what it didn't say. He didn't say, and you became children of God. <laughs> they were children of God before they ever heard the gospel. But now they become followers of Paul and them. Now you read in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where Paul says, Be ye followers of me, and as I'm, all, I'm also of Christ. We're to follow the men of God. Go to over here to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. And Paul here writes about New Testament ministries and remembering them that have the rule over you. Who has spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow? Considering the end of their conversation, the minister of the gospel who has preached the word and has a spiritual authority as an overseer of the flock has preached the word. You to consider, you to consider his uh, conversation, but you to follow his faith. He's got to be an example, or should be, of the things that he's preaching and the kind of life that you live. Now, when I play pickleball, I try to win. Some people think I'm kind of competitive. I don't know where to get that from, but anyway. But I try to watch what I say. I'm not pleased with every shot I try to make, that's for sure. But I try to conduct myself in such a manner because they all know that I'm a preacher. They call me the Baptist preacher man. <laughs> They know that I'm a preacher and I want to live in such a manner and way even in a competitive environment, brother, an atmosphere, that maybe one of these days one of them will come here and right now i got the promise of a husband and wife It should be showing up most any Sunday. I realize all eyes are on me all the time. Wherever I go, everybody knows that my, the eyes are on me. And I'm going to try to live in a manner and a way that's not a distraction and not a a stumbling block to somebody else. I want to be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. What about you? It says, ye became followers of us. That's discipleship. There's a lot of difference in relationship and discipleship. Election takes care of sonship. Now the gospel is involved in discipleship. You understand the difference? It's important that you do or you're getting all mixed up. So you became followers of us. And then it says, so... Uh, having received the word in much affliction, suffering was going to come upon them. For following Paul and them and being converted, suffering was going to come into their life. But it also, notice this: but with some joy of the Holy Ghost, there was going to be some blessings come along with it. So that you were in samples, of all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. You became followers, you became examples. Every single individual here this morning needs to understand: you need to be an example. An example to your wife, an example to your husband, an example to your children, an example to your neighbor, an example to your co-workers, an example to uh, whoever you're around on a regular basis. You need to know that you need to be an example. So you became followers, and you became examples to other people. This is what the church is all about. Let your light shine before men; they might see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And then we'll notice in verse eight. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith that God would spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. From you sounded out the word. When you come to the understanding that you belong to God based upon unconditional election, you're not worthy. You're, you're just a, 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 you know, a, a person that's a, 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 a sinner, uh, but yet you believe in your heart you're a sinner saved by the grace of God and that God has saved you by his mercy and by his grace, and he's loved you with an everlasting love, and sent his son who was perfect to die for you, that was imperfect, to send his son that was sinless to die for you, that was a sinner, to send his son to come pay the, the ransom price and the ransom debt, when you didn't have a penny to pay. In order to drive an evangelistic spirit with inside of us, my friends, and we might want to sound out the word. That word sound comes, the word means to blow a trumpet. Isaiah 58 says, Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet. When a trumpet is blown and blown properly, it will get the attention of people. And trumpets were used throughout the Bible, brother, as a means of communication. Sometimes the trumpet was blown in a certain way that told the people to gather together. Sometimes the trumpet was blown in such a manner in way they understood we need to prepare for battle. Sometimes the trumpet was blown when the people understood it's time to be on our journey. That trumpet had to give it a distinct sound, a certain sound. And when it was blown in a certain way, you knew exactly what you're to do. So it says, from you, sound it out the word. Every one of us ought to have an individual desire to sound out the word. To sound it out to our relatives, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, wherever we have the opportunity. But collectively, We need to do that. And I'm so thankful to God, I really am, that we have the means of streaming our services, that we have the means of, uh, you know, uh, having podcasts available for people to be able to listen to and to hear. And the response we've gotten to this has just been incredible. It's just been unbelievable just about. Uh, And I'm so happy and so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for Grace Alone Radio. Uh, Everywhere I go, they bring it up. And they say how much it means to them. Now, how they listen to that when they're ironing clothes, when they're, when they're dusting the furniture, when they're driving down the road, uh, how Grace Alone Radio comes in and, and just lifts their hearts and spirits. We hear the sermons and, the, and hear the, the hymns being sung. What a blessing it is to live in this age when that's possible, when we have the gospel, my friends, of God's sovereign grace can be heard around the world 24-7, around the world and around the clock, as they say. Talking to a friend of mine over in the state of Virginia, they don't have a pastor right now. stepped aside about three weeks ago. But they started meeting and trying to get people to come, but they can't get a minister every Sunday. So they meet and they pray and they sing, and I encourage them to continue to do that. And so what they're going to do, they're going to meet and they're going to sing and they're going to pray, and they're going to stream our service if they don't have a preacher. (laughs) What a blessing it is to be able to have that capability. A lot of times people would play tapes or the CDs when they can still do that, but now they can stream the services. You know, when you use it properly, what a gracious blessing it is to be able to do that. My preacher friend that contacted me from London, England a few years ago that I've told you about several times. People have asked me recently, what's the latest with him? You know, they moved to the Philippines about two years ago. And I talk to him every once in a while and... um, I talked to him about 7 o'clock in the morning. And it's like 8 o'clock at night over there in the Philippines. But I'm glad to tell you that he's been in contact with some preeminent Baptist preachers over there. And they're having conversation. He's invited one of them to come over and preach to their congregation. That just thrills my heart. And every morning, you know what they do? <laughs> I kind of hate to tell this. But anyway, uh, what they do every morning for their morning devotion... He downloaded, when he came across me a few years ago, he downloaded every sermon he found since the year 2005 and been listening to them. And he takes my sermons and breaks them up into four different pieces. And every morning at breakfast time, they use a fourth of a sermon for their morning devotion. I don't know how they don't lose appetite. (laughs) But you know, when he t- And he says, you know, Brother Lawrence, he says, your, your people in your congregation do the same thing. <laughs> I said, I think they get enough of me as it is. <laughs> but you could. <laughs> so every morning, they hear about 15, 10 to 15 minutes of a sermon I preach for their morning devotion. All that's possible because of modern-day technology. We're, we're being blessed to sound the word out as a, in this manner and way. But, brother, the most effective way you can sound the word out is it, uh, on an individual basis, person-to-person basis here in this world. That's the most effective way. When you read the life of the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, she drove, she rode, my friends, a long... I said drove. She rode a long ways uh, in that day in a buggy with no air conditioning and bumpy roads and one thing and another... And she traveled many, 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 many miles to go to where uh, King Solomon was at. You know what she said After she got there and seen everything and heard him? She says, the half has not yet been told me. Somebody said something. The word traveled all the miles down there some way or another, and it stirred her up to where she wanted to go and make the effort to go hear this man and the wisdom of this man. In the fourth chapter of the book of Joshua, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Joshua was telling the children of Israel about their deliverance across the Red Sea and then their deliverance across Jordan's River. And he said, these things happen that all the nations of this earth might know about the mighty hand of God. The word was sounding out. word was sounding out. Are we sounding out the word? Well, I'm thankful we have the capability with the modern day technology to do things I've already mentioned. But brethren, I'm telling you on a personal individual basis, we need to be having a desire to sound it out, blow the trumpet of the truth of God's sovereign grace again. When you come to Psalms 48, 8, it starts off, Great is the Lord and great to be praised in His church, in His kingdom here. But you come down to verse 8, and here's what it says. As we have heard, so have we seen. They came to Mount Zion to see. Why did they come to see? Because they had heard. Somehow or another, somebody said something, stirred them up. Got their curiosity, spiritual curiosity, uh, uh, to a fever pitch. And they came, says, as we have heard, so have we seen. I think about this little lady in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ who had a blood disorder. She had for 12 years. She spent everything she had. There was no much the better that's sad and not only does she have this affliction but now she's in poverty she has nothing but the Bible says she heard of Jesus and she thought well if I can just get to this man that I've heard of if I can just touch the hem of his garment I'll be made whole and she went to where she thought Jesus was and she found him but there's a great crowd of people all around him but she was determined And she worked her way through the multitudes of people. She finally got to where Jesus was. And she reached out and touched his garment, just like she had believed. When she did, her affliction was taken away from her. And she was cured. And then she began to try to weave her way back out of the multitude. And the Lord said to his disciples, who had touched me? They said, Lord, you're asking us who had touched you? You know, we don't know who's touched you. Well, the Lord knew who had touched him. No doubt, multitudes had touched him. But he was talking about just one of the multitudes that had touched him. Who had touched me? The Bible says when she saw that she could no longer be hid. (laughs) She turned around and declared unto Jesus for all the people what her situation was, what her condition was, and what had happened when she came and touched the hem of the garment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she was healed of her physical affliction she'd had for 12 years and lost everything she had earned and saved and everything else. She had lost it when she came to Jesus, my friends. The Lord took care of her situation. But what I want to say is, look at right here is, she said before the Lord and all the people, she told her story. And that's what you just need to do to, you know, to another person you think has not there. Just tell them your story of how you believe you've been saved by the grace of God. Just tell them your story my friends of how the God of heaven has been so good to you and merciful to you and has saved you from your sin. Just tell the story. They became followers. They became examples. Then they sounded out the word. This is what a New Testament church should be about. And then we close out it says, for they themselves show of us what manner of in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We see a turning from and a turning to. We see repentance. They turned from what? Serving idols. That had been their past. They've been serving idols. But now when they heard the truth of God's grace, when they heard the truth of the Son of God who came and loved them and suffered them and bled for them and died for them and rose for them, is on the right hand of God making an intercession for them when they heard that glorious gospel message, it motivated them and showed them there's a better way. They turned from those idols not just to sit down. They turned from those idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. <laughs> to wait for His Son from where? from heaven. When Jesus left this world, he went to heaven. But he didn't leave before he made a promise. In John chapter 14, he tells his disciples, You believe in God, believe also in me. For my Father's house are many mansions. If you're not so, I'd have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am there, you may be also. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. I'm waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He may come today. I don't know. He may come in my lifetime. He may not. But I got to thinking, I don't know who the oldest person here is this morning. But if he comes in their lifetime, he'll have to come in my lifetime. <laughs> if he comes in that oldest person's lifetime, we're all going to be here when he comes again. will not that be nice? I won't ask any volunteers to see who's the oldest here this morning. But anyway, uh, if he comes in their lifetime, he'll have to come in my lifetime to wait for his son Jesus from heaven who hath delivered us from the wrath to come. Brother, there's a wrath coming. And outside God's mercy and grace, we would experience it. You're not only saved to heaven, you're saved from hell. You're not only saved to righteousness, you're saved from wrath. A wrath will come with the second coming of the Lord and Jesus Christ on the wicked and the ungodly. And those who have lived the life of being murderers and rapists and robbers and of all kind of ungodly living in this world, they may escape the law of man, but they will not escape the law of God. And wrath will be upon them. My friends, as the children of God, as God's elect, you have been delivered from the wrath to come. And we're waiting for the Lord from heaven. And you can read all about it in the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 13.